Well, good morning, everyone. Um, as Shavu's already said, welcome. Um, belated Happy New Year to all of you. I, um, I trust you've had an opportunity to have a bit of a break, a bit of a, an opportunity to rest up and prepare yourself for the new year. This year's been the first year since I don't know how long that I've actually had three weeks off work. And um, it's been great to have that three weeks um, in a row. Um, tomorrow, I'm back in it again, but I'm grateful to God for that opportunity. As we, as we begin our short, our short um, four-week series from the book of Psalms, I would like to use Psalm 62 to form the basis of what a healthy, uh, meaningful communion with God can look like. It's here that David records one of the pointers to his success as a king and indeed as a man after God's own heart. Now, I have a confession to make and at the same time, I'm grateful to Shabu for slightly changing the title of our series. I met with Shabu and Paul for a coffee this week and I said to Shabu, we've been advertising this series about being uh, about prayer through the Psalms. And I said to him, the Psalm I've actually picked doesn't actually talk about prayer very much. And then Paul just said, neither does mine really. So I'm grateful that, that uh, Shabu has, by his grace, just, just slightly changed the title. While Psalm 62 doesn't discuss prayer specifically, there is an important underpinning of how we might go about growing and cultivating our relationship with God as he might want us to. Please turn with me to Psalm 62. Um, whether you're old school like me and you've got a hard copy or whether it's electronically, um, if you don't have a Bible and you'd like to grab one, there's, there's plenty down the front. We're going to read from verse uh, 1 in Psalm 62, just 12 verses long. For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall, a tottering fence? They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. For God alone, O oh my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is it from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your hearts before him. God is a refuge for us. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances, they all go up. They are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set your not hearts not on them. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. For you will render to a man according to his work. I've got a question for you. What do most people put their trust in? Who is mankind most dependent upon? When you, as, as I look around at the society that we live in, there, there's lots of different things that we could argue people put their hope in, their trust in, their faith in. But to me, primarily it all boils down to self. Most people are so self-reliant. Their real trust is in themselves. 
Just look around at the self-sufficient, self-absorbed, self-obsessed society that we live in today. And sadly, some character traits can be found from time to time at least in us. And I include myself in that. It's one of the things that God continues to work with me on. Sometimes he uses my wife to remind me um, of my self-sufficiency. Sometimes God uses circumstances, the power of his word, to remind me that I need to be more dependent upon him. We are so comprehensively surrounded by the worship of self that it is tempting to believe the lie that we are our own master. That somehow we have the right to bask in our own glory. Floyd Mayweather um, was the highest paid sportsman on the planet last year. He earned $105 million last year, not including any endorsements. Some have guessed that possibly including endorsements, he might have earned as much as $170 million last year, Floyd Mayweather. And I happened to be reading an article about Floyd Mayweather during the week. And in this article, they had some pictures of some of the things that he was posting on his Instagram account. One picture, Floyd is sitting in bed and he's covered with a pile of cash. Another picture has him standing in front of uh, his supercars. He has two Bugatti Veyrons, three Ferraris, a Lamborghini, and of course, the obligatory Porsche. And sitting right behind Floyd and all these cars is a huge private jet. Another Instagram post has a picture of him climbing the steps to his private jet with the caption, I've just decided to go and do some interstate shopping. Now, I understand we don't have such trappings of success. Yet, is it not easy to allow our own accomplishments, possessions or successes to be the source of our security, to be what our confidence lies in? Now, I'm not saying the hard work is not important. It's not a valuable asset and really an essential ingredient in any worthwhile venture, whether it's in our work, whether it's in our church life, whether it's in our study, whether it's in building our relationships, But the challenge for each of us is to do this while having a right relationship with God before having him as the focus. So again, I ask the question, who are you and I most dependent upon? In 1863, President Abraham Lincoln designated April the 30th as a day of national mourning. He called on the entire nation to fast and to pray. During his address, President Lincoln laments the reality that the nation has lost its way. And he wonders aloud as he talks about whether the Civil War was God's way of getting the nation's attention because of its preoccupation with self. And here is just a part of what Abraham Lincoln said on this day. Lincoln says this, Intoxicated with unbroken success... We have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace. Too proud to pray to the God that made us. We have grown in numbers, wealth and power as no other nation has. But we have forgotten God. 
All of this 150 years ago. And as I, as I read and I thought about that statement, I couldn't help but be challenged about the wonderful, blessed country that we live in and some of the challenges that we face living in it, not taking it for granted in having a right relationship with God as a result. Well, Psalm 62 falls into three natural stanzas. stanzas. Um, the first two stanzas end with the word selah. Now, I'm not a, I'm not a, a scholar, but um, my understanding is that scholars are still a little bit in dispute about what that exact meaning of selah is, although that most believe it to be a musical term, meaning to pause or to reflect. And so commonly as we come to read the Psalms, we would look at that word selah and know that perhaps we ought to take a break and, and meditate and think about what we've just read. And these stanzas could be described thus. The first four verses, David uh, focuses on his dependence through opposition. And the next two verses, he go, next four verses, he goes on to explore and explain his dependence. And in the last four verses, his dependence is compared, is contrasted with those that he sees around him. So verses one, one through four, the reality is that we don't know exactly because we're not told of the time or the occurrence um, of the setting of this psalm. And so it, we can only guess and make uh, an assumption. But what we do know through verses three and four is, is that it was a period of prolonged attack, a period of prolonged personal attack. And some suggest that it fits in well with Absalom's rebellion. Verses 3 and 4 describe David's plight like a wall about to collapse. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall, a tottering fence? His enemies believing that a little more force will be enough to topple him from his position. We've fought against him, we've argued against him, we've caused him to flee, maybe even to be in hiding. It's not going to require much more and we'll be able to topple him and it will be his end. There were those who were actively seeking to remove him from his God-given role by any means, particularly as it would seem as we, as we read verse 4, by undermining his integrity through spreading falsehood, perhaps half-truths and rumours, all the while while appearing to support him all the while by saying the right things on the outside, but working in a political sense to undermine him. Now, none of us is likely to face the kind of personal danger to our very lives that David did. Yet every one of us, everyone who desires to take a stand for God, whether it's in a role of leadership, all those who want to serve him, those who would boldly proclaim the gospel in their workplace to their neighbours, whether you take a stand for Christ at school, at work, at home, sometimes even in church life, at some point you're likely to be misunderstood. You may face criticism, you may hear rumours of what other people might be saying about you or what you're doing. Maybe you'll even be slandered or even mocked for the stand you take. 
2 Timothy 3.12 says, All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 1 Peter says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fire ordeal, ordeal that has come to, on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. John chapter 15 talks at length. Jesus says to his disciples, don't be surprised if the world rejects you. Don't be surprised if you are persecuted, if you're slandered. It happened to him first. Well, David's composure, his ability to withstand those opposed him, whether subtle or overt, flows from his trust in God alone. It's one of the key messages we see occurring throughout this psalm. Verse 1, for God alone my soul waits. Verse 2, he alone is my rock and salvation. Verse 5, for God alone my soul waits in silence. He only is my rock and salvation, my fortress I shall not be shaken. Verse 7, on God rests my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock, my refuge is God. Verse 8, God is a refuge for us. Down to verse 11, once God has spoken, twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God. God alone is sustaining David. And what's more, verses 1 and 5 record that he waits, he waits, he trusts in silence. David's content to let God be the arbiter. It is ultimately his judgment, not anyone else's, who we ought to be concerned with. About 20 years ago, a a group of guys from the church we were attending went to a shepherd's conference in the States and and we we knew the... um, um, personal assistant of John MacArthur Jr. and he said, oh look, um, John said he's prepared to come and have a, a, a meeting with you, uh, a meal with you. So we sat down and had a, a meal with John MacArthur and the first thing he said to us was, just ask me any question you like. I'm just a resource. Ask me anything you like. I'm happy to answer or try and answer. And there were lots of different questions but the one I remember the most is someone said to him, how do you deal with all the pressure? How do you deal with all the stress of having such a large church, of having to preach every week? You have so many activities outside of church life. How do you cope with it all? And John MacArthur Jr. just, as quick as you like, just said, the only pressure I feel is from above. He was concerned with doing what his God wanted. What other people thought, the pressures that other people tried to put on, was not his focus. Now, of course, there's a time and place for explaining ourselves. David explained himself on numerous occasions as as we read um, the account of his life in the Scriptures. We see throughout the New Testament that the disciples are brought before rulers and authorities and they seek to explain themselves, taking the opportunity to preach the gospel often. And yet sometimes we have to entrust ourselves to God. Regardless of what we say or do, others will judge us, sometimes rightly, sometimes wrongly. And seeking to put every right wrong, every wrong right, can lead to such a distraction that sometimes it's just not profitable to try and do it. Let me ask you, are we able to move on 
from those things that perhaps as we look back over the last year may have been said or done to us that have caused hurt? Are we able to move on, allow God to to be the final arbiter? Are we able to forgive and continue to serve as he would want us to? Or do we fall into the trap of stewing on what others have said or done or what they might think of us? Well, verses 5 and 8, David um, explores and explains this dependence on God that he has a little more for us. And he does this in two ways, by challenging us as to where our focus ought to be and then directing us on how we might get there. Verses 5 five and 7, as is really quite common in the Psalms, uh, the, the, David builds on and complements a statement that he's used earlier. In this case, in verse 1, he makes this bold statement, for God alone my soul waits, in God alone. And he continues to pile one powerful description of God's nation, God's faithful nature upon another to reinforce his point. So he says, my hope comes from God alone. God is my rock and salvation. God is my fortress, I shall not be shaken. On him rests my salvation. God is my mighty rock. God is my refuge. See, David's focal point is on what is verifiably and undeniably true. His experience tells him to rely on these truths and more importantly, the scriptures verify it's truth. Now you'll notice that David's focus during this time of hardship is not on, him, not on himself. He's not thinking, poor little old me. Nor is it on what others have said or done. But on what he knows is an absolute. God alone, on God's character, on God's faithfulness, can he depend. I have a book on my shelf and I think... I'm pretty sure it came from um, when I was at Bible college. I think it was a text that we had to read for biblical counselling at Bible college. And it's from Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. And in that book, um, he uses Psalm 42 and 43 um, as the basis for for what he, he goes on to talk about. Psalm 42 and 43, we, we find the psalmist wrestling with himself. And he repeats this phrase, Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? And the psalmist continues to repeat this phrase as he, as he grapples with what's going on in his own heart and where he ought to be. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so, so disturbed within me? And then he goes on to acknowledge, Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Saviour and my Lord. And Martin Lloyd-Jones discusses the the value of focusing on what we know is true, what we know of a gracious, faithful God, not on focusing sometimes on what our minds are focusing on. Focusing on what is true. His character, his faithfulness. Now, someone might argue this is easier said than done, and I'm sure we can all sympathise with such a statement as that. But verse 8 gives us some practical insight as to how to make David's response a more natural outflowing of our faith. And it's here where the the issue of prayer intersects with the ability of 
of the believer to express dependence on God alone in all circumstances. Now, as I said earlier, while this psalm does not mention prayer, and is in fact just an extraordinary expose of one man's total trust and confidence in God, verse 8 says we are to trust in God at all times and pour out our hearts to him. Trusting at all times and pouring out our heart, communion, communing with our God, talking to him, all go hand in hand. You know, prayer is not just when we we sit down and offer our prayers and petitions to God, that's important, but prayer isn't just then. Prayer is when we wake up in the morning and we acknowledge the sleep we've had uh, had by God's grace. Prayer is when when we start our day asking God to use us to serve him. Prayer is when we're on our way to work and and we're thanking God for the opportunity we have to serve in that day. Prayer is when we go to bed at night and we acknowledge the day we've had has been through his, his help, in his strength. Most Christians or probably even people that aren't Christians but have some sort of an understanding of God will ask him, they'll pour out their heart to him in their hour of real need. And that's right and proper. God calls upon his people to call upon him. But I wonder how many of us spend as much time in communing with him, pouring out our hearts, acknowledging him when our lives are in cruise control. When things in our life are going according to plan, is our desire to be before our God as real as it ought to be? Church, if our walk with God, this great, mighty, all-powerful God is to grow and our faith be found strong in all the circumstances of life, we must learn to pour out our hearts, to commune with him in all the seasons of life. Only communing, only spending time, only pouring out our hearts to God when we need him will continue to stun our growth. It will continue to affect our fruit. David can only be called a, a, a man after God's own heart because he knew it to be true. He knew while he experienced God's faithfulness. He cultivated that relationship while he was a shepherd boy. And he continued to do it with it throughout his life. Now, we know from our recent studies through Samuel that David was far from perfect, but he had a heart that was bent towards God. He had a heart's desire to get to know him, to depend upon him in all circumstances. Well, in the last four verses, we see this dependence that David had on God compared and contrasted with what the world trusts in. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances they all go up. They are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set your not heart not on them. If our faith is not in God, then what is it in man? Whether they be well-respected, well-liked, popular, whether they be successful in their business life or gifted sportsmen or maybe they're none of the above 
Maybe they're just some homeless guy that's set up camp behind your back fence. They are all together like a breath. All men will die. They will all fail us, disappoint us and let us down. No person is worthy of placing all our trust in. What about extortion or robbery, crime? Maybe I won't go there. What about riches? Anyone whose hope is found in riches is headed for poverty of spirit. Proverbs 11.4 says, Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. You know, sometimes I read parts of the New Testament and I wonder whether what the New Testament writers described Um, they're describing as they're thinking about some Old Testament scripture. And as I've meditated afresh on this psalm, it seems to me that that Paul has a similar sentiment in mind when he writes to the church at Philippi. Philippians chapter 4, verses 11 to 13, this is what Paul says. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether being well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Listen to what Paul says. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Like David, Paul knew the highs and lows of being a servant of God. Like David, Paul knew opposition, physical, emotional, spiritual trials, yet he's able to acknowledge with David, God alone sustains me. The psalm ends with with some great words of encouragement in the last two verses. You know, the reality is that despite our best efforts, we're often found wanting. It's so easy to live our lives in our own strength, to focus on self lacking that depth that allows us to commune, pray with and grow in our dependence on God in all areas and at all times. Yet verse 12 reminds us of another key attribute of our God, one without which none of us could hope to stand, that of his steadfast love. We know that often when we need it most, he is gracious to us and sustains us through our greatest need. Maybe our focus has not been where it is and God would want us to refocus, to rely on him alone. God's faithful, God has been faithful to us and he will continue to do so. For all of those who must suffer, those who've been misunderstood, those who have heard rumours spread about them, those who have been slandered or persecuted, ridiculed or rejected for his sake. The psalm ends with the words that he will render justice for all. For you will render to a man according to his work. It is our fervent prayer as a a church at Canterbury Gardens, as a leadership that 
that no one leave here without being given the opportunity to hear more about the greatness of this God that David describes. If that is you, if you would like to know more, then please talk to someone today. Take the, take the opportunity to talk to a friend, one of the pastors, or someone else you know and respect. Friends, I wonder what a difference it might make to our year moving forward if instead of going over some old hurtful thing, someone might have said or done, or dwelling on our own problems, as if no one understands or cares, we're able to remember the words of this psalm, God alone. God alone is my refuge. God alone is my strength. He ought to be the focus. Now, we have the advantage of looking at the Old Testament through the eyes of the cross. It is our privilege to know a God who has restored man to himself through Christ. We have had revealed to us that majestic plan of God through Christ at Calvary. And as we read this psalm, we do so knowing that in Christ we have direct access to the very presence of the God that David places his trust in. This God who is mighty, who is a refuge, who is his salvation and strength, we have direct access through Christ. While David may be a man after God's own heart, the believer is called a child of God. Adopted into the family with the right to call him Abba Father. What father, when his, when his small child runs up to him crying, asking for his dad, turns his back? No, no good father does that. We welcome them into our arms. That is the God we know. This all-powerful God is our father, a father to all who call upon him. Can I encourage you to meditate just on the wonder of that as you go about your week? That's the kind of God that we know as a father. A prayer life, that commune with God, whether, whether living in plenty or in want, is so important in growing and becoming all he desires us to be. To call upon him only in our need is to open ourselves up to the fear the insecurities and uncertainties that the life we live just seems to constantly be throwing our way. Friends, the real test of our prayer life, of our growth in him, is not when we're in distress, but when peace and prosperity abound. When things are going well, is he still the focus? For in all circumstances, he is a refuge for us. Let's close in prayer. Oh, Father God, we we come to you now and we acknowledge that you alone are the one true God, that you are our rock and our refuge. We know and believe that whether we are well-fed or hungry, whether we live in peace or in turmoil, whether we're in pain or prosperity, you are the source of our hope. It is you we are dependent upon. 
May you teach us more about what it means to depend upon you in all the seasons of life. Oh God, I pray for those who are laid low at this time, whether through health or other circumstances of life. May they find the peace and confidence that comes in God alone. Father God, I pray that you would call those from among us who are far from you to yourself by your grace, that they might come to know a gracious, loving, heavenly Father in Christ. Oh God, I pray that those who have been hurt, whether in word or deed, would find the grace to forgive and to move forward in their service for you. We thank you for who you are, for what you have called us to, recognising that we are who we are because of what you have done for us in Christ. May we serve you faithfully this week and as the year goes on, knowing that in you alone we may find strength. In Jesus' name, amen.